It's Daily Thunder, thundering out the truth of Jesus Christ live every morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more about our discipleship programs or to support this podcast, visit ellerslie.com. Today, we have a special guest speaker on campus, so buckle your seatbelts. All right, well, for those of you who are listening in on Saturdays, we have been walking through a collection of psalms for the past few weeks, and in particular, in particular, a collection of 15 psalms that are packaged together um, right after Psalm 119 is where they're situated, and they're called the Psalms of Ascent. Some people also call them the Pilgrim Psalms, or Pilgrim Songs, if you want to say it that way. And what we are looking into this morning is that we have found ourselves at the seventh psalm in this collection. So almost at that halfway point, Um, which as you well know, it's almost when you're at that halfway point of the really long road trip that you can start to grow weary, that it starts to feel really long. And so as I was studying this out, I just thought how neat it is as we get into the context of what the psalm is talking about to have refreshed hope, renewed vision, and just fresh truth uh, to bank our souls upon. So we're going to be looking at, again, at Psalm 126 this morning. Um, We know that Seven in the Bible is the number of completion, and you will see that there is a different tone that is in the psalm that is not in the other psalms of ascent. It's overwhelmingly positive and joyful, even though it does mention tears and weeping, which you might think is somewhat of a uh, paradox or oxymoron, but it is true, so I'm excited to get into that this morning. As far as the authorship, we know we don't know a lot of who actually penned these psalms. The one is written by Solomon. I think a few are written by David. This one is, we technically do not know who wrote this psalm. Some people would attribute it to Ezra the scribe, which does make sense when we get into the context a little bit that this would be written after the Babylonian captivity um, when the Jews were returned from their exile. And we're going to see that's the theme of what we're talking about this morning. So I just want to go in and read through the psalm once and then kind of give you an outline, a way that I've broken it down at least. You can break it down how you want to, but that might help us walk through the psalm in our time together. So reading this together, uh, just in verse, starting off right in verse 1, it says, When the Lord restored the captives of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter, and our tongue was singing. Then said they among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our captives, O Lord, as the streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap in joy. He who goes forth and weeps, bearing precious seed to sow, shall doubtless come home again with rejoicing, bringing his grain sheaves with him. Six small verses, and yet the way that as I was studying this and pondering this out for myself, I broke them into groups of two is how are the the subheadings that I attributed to this psalm. So verses one and two, I'm calling just the, the narrative, the what's going on in the psalm, gives us the context out of which the psalmist is actually writing. So we'll get to know a little bit of what um, the children of Israel had experienced, had walked through, and now what they're living in as a result. Then in verses three through four, we see that there's this proclamation of truth, and also out of that proclamation, out of that truth statement, comes forward this prayer unto the Lord God um, that is quite beautiful, which we'll get into in a little bit. And then lastly, in verses 5 through 6, we see that there is just this beautiful poetic promise 
Um, you know, as we walk through the psalm, all of a sudden it, it ends with these two strong statements that have this sowing, reaping, um, planting, harvesting language tied into it. So that's how I've divided it up in case that's helpful to you. But I just kind of want to walk through each verse very briefly to give us um, a little bit of a deeper meaning and then bring this home to some takeaways for us as believers uh, here today in the world that we're living in. So we see, just in looking at verses 1 and 2, that this psalm, the, the overall context of it is just a psalm of freedom. Um, it's a freedom song, we could call it that. And it's the psalmist is singing about being delivered, being restored, having their captivity be brought back or be returned again back to its former, um, former place of thriving and being free and not being under captivity. So that's the overall tone of this, uh, of this portion of scripture. And we also see, I thought it was really neat that in verses 1 and 2, that it starts off in verse 1 with when, and then verse 2 with then. And it's just neat to see that cause and effect relationship of what's happening. That the psalmist is saying, when the Lord did this, when the Lord brought back our captivity, when he restored us to Zion, our rightful home place, then our mouth was filled with laughter. Then our tongue was filled with singing. Then we were like those who dream. And it's just, again, I love that, that, uh, contrast that the psalmist is putting before us and saying, all of this happened when the Lord turned back our captivity. This was the result. And I think that's important for us as believers as well, that those of us who have been delivered from the captivity of the oppressor of our souls, we too are like those who dream. We too can have our mouths filled with laughter, our tongue with singing. The, um, as I was looking into this psalm, it's it's hard to, when you are born into freedom, you're born into a free state, you've never known captivity, you've never known oppression, you've never known not having rights, it's easy to take liberty and freedom for granted. And I think we can say that very easily even living in the country that we do, that freedom is something we can take for granted, that we haven't had to grow up among the, the harrowing experiences of being you know, under dictatorship or um, forms of government that are oppressive or that demean humanity or take away life and rights. And so as I was looking into this psalm, I thought it was just important to get some context for what the children of Israel would actually be experiencing when they were in captivity. And it's interesting because if you, if you flip a few pages over to Psalm 137, we get a seriously sad description of what they would have experienced when they were in captivity. I'm just going to read the first few verses to give us some context, and then it will give us an even greater shade of meaning as to what this freedom actually would have looked like and tasted like to them. It says in Psalm 137, by the rivers of Babylon, again this is denoting that they're not in their hometown, they're not in their, um, the place of their heritage, they've been carried away captive to Babylon, which is also representative of, of sin, of pride, of evil in general, if you want to read it with that context. It says, there we sat down. Yes, we wept when we remembered Zion. We hanged our harps upon the willows in the midst thereof. For there they that carried, away, carried us away captive required of us a song. And they that wasted us 
requ required of us mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. But how shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? Again, quite possibly one of the saddest, most mournful laments of a psalm that we have in this entire book. And that is what the psalmist has, the, the children of Israel have been delivered from. This is what they had walked through. And I think it's just important to note really quickly that this small portion of scripture in Psalm 137 tells us about five different things that can happen to us when we're in captivity. We see that the first thing is that it makes us wistful for the past. We're reminiscing on what we used to have and what we used to enjoy, on the freedom that we used to partake in. We also see that the position of the people when they're in captivity is that of sitting down. They're not standing up. They're not ready to go. They're not ready for the fight. They've been conquered. They've been plundered. Everything's been taken away. And now they're just in this recumbent position going, yeah, we got nothing left. We have, we're not armed. We cannot fight back against this. We are defeated. And I think just that position denotes that, that position of defeat that we experience when we are in captivity ourselves. It also says that there's tremendous grief it says that they hung their harps upon the willows, and that would be a weeping willow, which again is just giving this word picture of immense grief, immense sadness. Um, it says that we wept when we remembered Zion. We wept when we remembered where we, the birthplace that we had formerly enjoyed, the gift that we had been given, the very city of God. And then we also see that when we're in captivity, that demands are placed upon us that we cannot fulfill. It says in verse 3 that those who carried, those who were the captors said, okay, sing us one of your songs at Zion, almost mocking them, saying, okay, how good is your God now? Now that you're in captivity, where is your deliverer? Because it looks to me like you're defeated. And we see that they're placing a demand on them. They're placing a task on them as a taskmaster that they're having a hard time fulfilling. They're saying, how can we even sing the Lord's song in a strange land? And then lastly, going back to that verse, it seems that when we are in captivity, we do lose our song. We do lose focus. We do lose perspective. We, do, we can easily lose hope and of the future that God has for us. And so I just wanted to really quickly hit on that because as we go back to our psalm that we're looking into this morning, that of Psalm 126, it brings so much more meaning when we read things like when the Lord brought back the exiles of, of Zion or when the Lord turned again our captivity, we were like those who dream, saying it was too good to be true. This is like the best dream that we've ever had. Can someone pinch me? Is this real? So when we read that, we see, okay, this is why it felt, this is why it was so amazing, because that was the oppression that they were formerly enduring back in the time of their captivity. Now being on the other side of captivity, we see that they're bringing their sheaves with them to Jerusalem. That all of those exiles are like the, the fruit, the harvest that is returning back to the place of, of their homestead, their origin, their birthplace. And we realize that true freedom is the stuff that dreams are made of. That that is um, ultimately what the soul is longing for. We long to be free. We long to be released from whether it's stress or whether it's oppression or war or any uh, trouble, trial. We long to be free from those things. And I think the psalm gives a beautiful articulation of that. The second section is going into the, the proclamation of the psalmist or the prayer of the, and the prayer of the psalmist. So in verse 3 we see that 
the psalmist states, the Lord has done great things for us, whereof we are glad. And it's interesting because twice in this psalm, there are examples where the psalmist states a phrase, and then he repeats it right after, but he kind of amps it up and takes it up a notch and adds something to it. And we see that here in this section. In verse 2, you'll see that it says that the heathen said, the Lord hath done great things for them. The next verse, the psalmist says, the Lord has done great things for us, whereof we are glad. And again, I'm reading my own tone and inflection into this verse, but it seems that there's that, there's that double emphasis that the psalmist is drawing attention to the fact that, uh, yeah, we really are. <laughs> we really are glad. And I think in our culture, in our context, we can lose sight of, the wor- of words like great things or we are glad. We kind of associate that with like, yeah, I'm doing okay. Yeah, that was great. You know, we equate it with subpar and maybe not with knowing the true understanding of the word. But when we get into this in context, if you look into the, the meanings of these words, the Lord has done great things. It has this, this association with the Lord growing something great in our life. And so it's almost like the psalmist is saying, the Lord's grown great things for us, which is so beautiful in the light of the fact that at the end he closes with all this harvest, uh, this sowing reaping language. So it's kind of sprinkled all throughout the psalm that we get these glimpses of um, these, this beautiful imagery that the psalmist is weaving but he's saying, the Lord's grown great things. And the idea of growing something great, it's by adding or binding or twisting one thing to another. And it just goes to show that it is only the Lord, it is only Jehovah God, the true and living God, that can truly deliver us out of captivity. And he does that by binding himself to us through Jesus Christ and delivering us out of sin, delivering us out of oppression. Again, this is a a literal example of what happened. This has happened in history, but it's showing us a symbolic example of what this means for us as New Covenant believers, realizing that we too were enslaved. We too were born into captivity because we were born in sin. We were born in Adam. Um, so again, the idea of great has this idea of growing something great because God has been bound together with that thing and has made it great. And the idea of glad, it's not this half-hearted, trying to make my best attempt at being happy sort of glad. It's not even a Pollyanna glad game sort of glad where we're trying to make the best out of this situation and we're going to muster up all the courage we can and if we pace on the smile for long enough, we're actually going to feel it. That's actually not this word at all. Um, This word, it means merry, blithe, joyful, merry-hearted, gleeful. And so when you read those words, all I can think of is, excuse me, that this is kid on Christmas morning kind of joy. That this is, you know, child takes their first bite of birthday cake, and that's the look on their face, sort of joy. You know, kids, they cannot contain their excitement. Even if it's just something like, oh, we're going to go outside and we're going to pick dandelions. You know, free activity for us as adults. But they're thinking, oh my goodness, this is the greatest thing that's happened and this is the best day. And they, I mean, you know, you tell a little kid that you're going to do something with them and they like cannot even contain their little body. They're like, you know, wriggling and wiggling all around. And, you know, when they giggle, they just fall (laughs) fall flat down, just enraptured, delighted, so totally overtaken with joy. 
And I think it's really easy that we can lose that so easily as Christians. That we have been delivered from so great a debt. And yet we can be like, oh yeah, these garments of salvation, like I'm, get, I'm breaking them in. Like they're, you know, pretty comfortable now when they should, they should always be brand new. And we should never lose that fervor, never lose that freshness of our salvation. That's the idea of glad, having this uncontainable, childlike delight and wonder in what God has done. And there's so much that we can delight in, in what God has done, just in delivering us, delivering our souls um, from the penalty of sin to even the, the blessings and the work that he is doing right here in our present circumstances. This idea of, um, of glad is carried through into the next verse when the psalmist begins praying. So he talks about what's happened, then he says, the Lord's done some great things for us. We're super excited about it. And then out of all of that praise, there issues forth. There's this bubbling over of a prayer unto the God that has delivered them. And it's very interesting what the psalmist prays because he says, turn again our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the, in the Negev, or the streams in the south, some uh, Bibles translate it. So as I was looking into that, I thought it was interesting because the psalmist is already saying, when the Lord returned the exiles to, Z- to Zion. So the, ca- the deliverance has already taken place. But then in verse 4, we see that the psalmist's prayer is not of, Lord, thank you so much for delivering us, but do it again. Like, Lord, we need more of this. Bring back more exiles. Bring back the captivity again. And so it, again, I don't know all that was going on at this time, but it seems that there was still delivering that was yet to be done. And that was the psalmist's plea. And I, again, I bring it back to that childlike concept of the fact that when we see God doing something exciting, we automatically, a child wouldn't say, oh, thank you for that, that was quite enough. No, no, that deliverance was sufficient. I'm done, I'm good, you, you know, Take that over to the next town or county and try it over there. No, a child would say, again, again, you know, one more story, one more, you know, one more chase down the hall, one more underdog on the swing. That was something that growing up my dad would do for us. We had this big, beautiful oak tree in the backyard, and my dad being the carpenter that he uh, was and is, he built a beautiful, it was like the, the mother of all swings, right? And we would get on there on a Sunday afternoon, and that was the highlight of the afternoon was the underdog. Because dad would go higher and higher and higher and higher. And then he would zoom under, and we would go over. And then my response was never, okay, I'm done. Let's move on to the next thing. I want to go back inside. It was, no, again, oh, come on, dad, just one more time, please. That is what the psalmist is saying. Lord, do this again. So there's this this unquenchable desire to see this happen over and over again in greater and greater measure. Streams in the south has this idea, or the streams in the Negev. Um, I've not been to Israel, but as I was just studying a little bit about this um, portion of the country, it's located in the south, and many, much of it is noted for its desert. Not all of it is desert, but I guess desert comprises uh, maybe a good chunk of it, we'll say. And it's known for its arid climate. So it's 
I got a nice long dry summer and then a short rainy season. But it's within that rainy season that torrents of rain can come down. There's just these flash floods that all of a sudden, you know, sun's out, looks great, boom, storm, storm comes rolling in, fills entire canyons with water. It can be quite dangerous, even just the flash flooding, we think. I mean, I've never even seen that, to be honest. But it, it can take lives. It can uh, ruin livelihoods, even, if someone had found it, you know, planted themselves there or built a house there. And we actually see that it's something that can happen so quickly and so suddenly. And so the word picture that we're given here is, Lord, turn back our t- captivity just as you fill those streams in the Negev quickly with a sudden downpour and quenching all of our dry and the dusty places of our souls. Fill us is kind of, uh, again, another, is one connotation that this verse can have. Some people would also say that the psalmist is also praying that as this filling up means a literal filling up, that they want more exiles being filled up or returned back to the homeland. And I think that we could say that both would be true, and you can study that on your own and see which one you want to more align with. But as I was studying out streams in the South, that is the picture that we're given, which again is so beautiful and so easy to read over and not to dig deep into and see the fact that God does want to fill those dry and dusty places, but have we gotten out of the habit of asking for more, of not being satisfied with where we're at in our current walk with Christ, but saying, no, Lord, I want to go deeper. I know there's more. I know that there's more to be discovered in you. That's what the psalmist is saying. Then these last two verses is where we read about sowing and reaping, about how we read about how when someone goes forth bearing precious seed that they are going to doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing all these sheaves, uh, bringing an abundant harvest with them. And again, I mentioned earlier that there's two times in the psalm where something is repeated and amped up, and this is the part where we see it repeated and amped up. So it says, they that sow in tears shall reap in joy. Short statement, I think we all get the picture. But the psalmist isn't willing to leave it there. He says, no, we're going to take this one level deeper. (laughs) Let me show you what I really mean. When we go forth, weeping, bearing precious seed, he shall doubtless come again or come home again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. So he doesn't just leave it as when you sow in tears, you're going to reap with joy. But he gives a deeper meaning, saying when you bear this precious seed, you will come back with a great harvest. And it's amazing to see that we start off in this psalm talking about dreaming. But then at the end of the psalm, we see that there's actually a doing. That it's, it's not just that God has returned the exiles to where they should be, to Zion. He hasn't just brought them back, but he's also given this great harvest. He's given fruitfulness. He's redeemed everything that the locust has eaten. Everything that they were going forward, sowing in tears with, he's saying, but I'm, I'm, there's a harvest in this. And it's really interesting because tear, if you look at verse 5, they that sow in tears, we think that, you know, we are probably all acquainted with what tears are. But it was neat when I was looking at the definition for this, it said that it's the root word actually comes from when olives or grapes are pressed. And it's the tear of the grape or the olive when it is pressed. 
that forms the juice. And I think that's a beautiful picture because in order to reap that harvest, it's saying that the condition for this promise is that there must be tears and there must be precious seed, right? And so it's beautiful to see that there is a purpose to that pressing in our lives. When we go through times where we feel like we're that olive or we're that grape in the press, that there's that God has a, a loving purpose in that, that it's not aimless, it's not meaningless, but it has a purpose, it has an expected end, it has a redemption that God wants to bring into our lives um, and actually have be a witness and a testimony to others. We see that those who did not know God, it says they said among, among the heathen, the Lord has done great things for them. So even from the outside looking in at God's people, people who did not know the true and living God were saying, there's something going on here. There's something that they have that I don't. And it all comes out of the fact that when we go forward in tears, that there is that great harvest, and it's, it's unexplainable to those who don't have the hope of God, to those who don't have the hope of Christ. So we, again, we could say that grapes or olives cry when they're being pressed, and that's the idea of sowing in tears, that there's a pressing that leads, that yields great purpose and a great harvest. I love the contrast that the psalmist also presents in just saying, sow in tears, reap in joy. Goes forward weeping, comes again with rejoicing. He once had seed, now he has sheaves. And just to see the, the beginning and ending mile markers here of, of the psalmist's journey, that there's a complete overturn. It's going from one opposite, one extreme to the other. And only God can do that. And that's what I love because God is the one who gets the glory out of these things. God is the one who frees the captives. And it brings great joy because we know that, the, that it had nothing to do with our own deliverance. We cannot deliver ourselves. Someone who is a slave cannot free themselves out of slavery. There must be a liberator. So the principle goes. And we see that here um, in, this, in this psalm. Weeping, in verse 6, it, again, just carries this deep emotion. This isn't, I'm a little misty-eyed. Uh, yeah, this is stirring me up. Yes, this is getting me a little emotional. No, this is deep grief, lamenting, wailing, ugly crying. That is exactly um, what, this, what this word means. And we do go through those seasons in our life where before knowing Christ, it is <laughs> a season of weeping. We may not even realize it yet how much we are actually hurting being dead in our sin and dead in our trespasses. And yet, because we can be freed in Christ, to whom the Son makes free, he shall be free indeed, we can come home again with rejoicing. And that word rejoicing is the opposite of weeping. And it actually means where weeping was our ugly crying, so to speak, rejoicing is a cry of gladness. That's literally what it means. And so it's tears of joy, being so overcome with positive emotion rather than negative emotion over what God has done. So that's just a short walk through what this psalm is talking about. And even that, I think there's so much to take away. But I think I just want to give us a few things that we can think on to bring this into our own hearts and lives just one step deeper. And that is, I just want to talk about this aspect of captivity and the fact that we should cast off 
our captivity. Um, prior, you know, if, if we do not know the Lord, all of us, actually, I'll just say all of us, were born into captivity. Um, we were born in sin. We were born under that penalty. There's no getting out of it. It says that, you know, as in Adam, all die, but then there's the hope saying, even in Christ, so all shall be made alive. And so I, w- I like to think of it as there's a few different types of captivity. We do have the, if you want to call it as Eric would probably say, the capital C captivity, <laughs> the, the, the big issue with our actual, the power and presence and penalty of sin in our life. And then we also have the type of captivity where we have been liberated from the oppressor of our soul, and now we are captivated by Jesus, right? We will be captive to something. Romans 6 tells us that expressly. In fact, let me just go there really quick. It says, in Romans 6, I think it's somewhere around verse 18, it says, being then made free from sin, you became the servants, or the slaves, of righteousness. Paul is saying, I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as you have yielded your members, servants to uncleanness, and to iniquity unto iniquity, even so now, now that you have been delivered, yield your members, servants to righteousness unto holiness. So we see that it's not the fact that we are completely free. We are not bound by anything. No, we have been set free from our captivity to sin, to be captivated by the Lord Jesus Christ. And we know that he is not the harsh taskmaster, but that he is a loving ruler, a just judge, a heavenly father, a good gift giver. And we know that his way of ruling, his way of being a master, of being Adonai, is completely other than Satan and the enemy of our souls and how he uh, wields this uh, complete just ruling with an iron fist sort of mentality over our lives. We see it's very different. And so when we have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, we see that there's still work to be done. There are still areas of our lives, pockets of our lives, that maybe we're still captive to the things of this world. Maybe there are still areas where there are Areas of sin that are in need of sanctification. Um, Again, there can just be that lingering presence of sins in our life. Yes, we've been delivered from the power of sin, but there might still be the presence of sin over here, over here. Maybe I need to work on my tongue, or maybe I need to work on um, selfishness, this and that. And that's too, is a form of captivity. And we know that those of us who have been liberated in Christ Jesus that we can say, Lord, do it again. Go deeper. Cleanse me of this. Rid me of this. Help me to decrease so that you can increase. And then there's also this type of captivity where it's it's like in Psalm 137, the sad psalm that we read before, where you're in the state of bewilderment going, how can we sing in this strange land? Like, this just feels like a strange place to be. (laughs) This is a strange season. This is a strange circumstance. I don't know quite what to do. It feels like the whole circumstance is one of captivity. And we can experience that as well. And I would say to those who may be feeling that or to those who are walking through that, 
that the promises found in verses 5 and 6 of those who are sowing in tears will reap in joy is, is a promise from the Lord for you this morning, that we cannot grow weary in well-doing, and that we must put into perspective that this is just a light affliction for the moment that's working in us a far exceeding um, hope and weight of glory. The second thing I want to point out, other than casting off our captivity, is to not lose our wonder. Again, we were talking about that, having that childlike delight, that childlike excitement of being made new, being made a new creation in Christ, and to never lose that wonder, to never get over the fact that we are saved, that we have been delivered, that I have been given everlasting life, and that it's not just in the hereafter, but it's now with Jesus Christ right here today. And I would say cultivate that in as many ways as you can. If you find, again, Isaiah 61 verse 10 talks about, you know, I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. My soul shall be joyful in my God. Why? For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me. I love that idea of covered me with a robe of righteousness. How does, and, and what's the word picture here? As a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. This is a tone of complete jubilee. Um, it's so over the top rejoicing that you can't help but even smile as you, as you even read the portion of scripture if you're to take that literally into your own life. But if we feel like, oh yeah, I've gotten kind of used to the garments of salvation. It's, I'm breaking them in. You know, they've got some wear and tear on them now. They're comfortable. I would say, don't get comfortable. Don't let them, don't let yourself lose the newness of what you have because we know that his mercies are new every morning. Um, you know, just as these, these garments of salvation are not going to wear out. But yet we can take it for granted if we're not mindful, if we don't remember what God has done. And that's why remembrance is so key. We see that even in this psalm. The psalmist is saying, when the Lord returned our captivity, then we were like those who dream. It's almost like the psalmist is saying, I don't want to lose the memory of that dream. I don't know if you've ever woken up from a really good dream. I have very few, I have very few dreams in my life that I remember, and I have very few recurring dreams, but it almost seems I remember the recurring dreams. And one of these dreams is that Usually right after I wake up from the stream, I feel like it is so real that it, like it actually happened is how I feel. This one dream, this is so embarrassing, I feel like, or in this dream, I don't even know how it happened, but I have a little capuchin monkey, and I love this monkey so much. <laughs> it is the cutest thing, you know, it, it sits on my shoulder all the time, and I attribute this from watching A Little Princess way too many times when I was growing up. For the fact that the little girl, her name was Sarah, even though she spelt it wrong. Um, but she, there was a monkey in that movie, and I think for some, whatever reason, I identified with that because I have this monkey, and I love it, and I end up losing this monkey. And then I wake up, and I still have this dream as an adult, I'll just let you know. And when I wake up, I really do think that I am on a search for this monkey. <laughs> and so I, you know, you wake up from this dream, and it feels so real that it's like, what? Where did it go? I've actually gotten up out of bed and started my search for the monkey and gone, oh, I don't have a monkey? <laughs> okay, we're going back to reality now. Realizing that humorous illustration to say, this dream isn't a someone pinch me, have me wake up, 
This is truth. This is reality. This isn't something that we're going to wake up from. But I would say be careful about getting into that stupor that is so easy to slide into in Christianity where it just becomes another day where it's just, oh yeah, the Lord's mercies are new every morning. Praise the Lord. Thank the Lord that I can, I have 1 John 1, 9 and if something happens, I can just, you know, 1 John 1, 9 that later and it'll all be taken care of. When we have an attitude of soul like that, we're showing that we've lost the freshness of what we have in Christ. So don't lose your wonder. Ask God with that childlike excitement to do it again, uh, to go deeper in your own heart and life. And then the very last thing is to not discredit the value of tears. I, um, I am sorry to admit, when I have read this psalm before, I've often taken verses 5 through 6 for granted because it seems so trite. It's kind of like, you know, weeping will endure for the night, but joy will come in the morning. And I have taken that not as actual truth and kind of, and I've looked at that as like, oh yes, that's a, that's a nice principle, it's a nice promise, but it, it's grown a little trite. I lost my wonder over those verses. I guess, I guess I could say it that way. And as I was studying this out, the Lord convicted me on that all over again and just said, Sarah, this isn't, these aren't just nice words. These aren't, this isn't just poetry. This isn't something to make you feel good or to give you a false sense of hope. This is something that I want to do in your life. And so I would just encourage you to not discredit the value of tears. Um, that when we sow in tears, I love the fact that the tears are actually what is bringing forth the harvest. As they sow in tears, they are watering the very ground that they are planting with something that is bringing them grief and pain and heartbreak or trial. And that is what is leading to these sheaves that they're coming home again with. And so tears are actually a very necessary part of the process. And I don't mean that you, we have to you know, go straight forward out of here weeping the whole day long, but it, it goes to sh it, it's just this principle of there will be times of heartbreak. There will be times of trial. But again, Galatians 6, 9 says, don't grow weary in well-doing. Why? For in due season, you will reap. What's the condition? If you don't faint. If you don't lose heart. And so for me, I had stopped, I, I guess I want to encourage us all in the fact that we should be expectant for God to completely repurpose our tears. That he isn't just going to say like, oh, thank you for that offering. That was nice. But he transforms tears to an abundant harvest in our life. And we should be expecting that abundant harvest of God's glory out of any situation, out of any heartache, out of any trial, out of any distress. That's what, it's definitely what he wants to do in our life. I remember someone said to me once, you know, Sarah, someone needs to see you grieve well. And I remember thinking about that, and it kind of boggled me at first. I was like, what does that even mean? Because, you know, grieving means like I've lost my joy, so I can't really grieve. But as I thought about that concept, I realized that godly grief is actually beautiful to behold in a believer. Talks in, uh, Paul mentions, that we don't sorrow as those who don't have hope. So there is, there is a godly way to grieve. We don't sorrow as those who don't have hope in Christ. But there is such a thing as godly sorrow. We know that godly sorrow worketh repentance. It's actually beautiful 
to me to see someone, and I know that God thinks it's beautiful in my life, when he sees me repentant and sorrowing over my sins. That's actually a good thing. That's nothing we need be ashamed to cover up. That's taking a posture of humility where the Lord looks down and says, yes, and I will lift you up. And we also see that there is also godly grief. There are times of great mourning. There are times of sadness. And yet, as Paul said, we don't grieve as those who don't have hope. I just want to leave you um, with, again, with Galatians 6, 9, it says, Let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. And then 2 Corinthians 4, 17 says, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, works in us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. So I hope that brings encouragement to you this morning um, as we are all sojourning and making our way down this pilgrim pathway and knowing Jesus more. So pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you that, Lord, that you have left us promises in your word that say that when we do so in tears that we will reap in joy, that when we go forward and we're weeping, bearing that trail of tears that's watering the precious seed that you have given us, Lord, that you will repurpose that, that you will redeem that, that you're not going to just leave it dead in the ground, that it's not going to remain a dead or dormant seed, but you will bring that to full bloom, to a full harvest in our life. And so I pray that your Holy Spirit would be at work bringing those things to bloom in our souls, in our lives, in our relationships. Lord Jesus, I pray if there's any area of captivity that we are um, under the oppression of, Father, I pray in the name of Jesus that we would flee to your cross, that we'd find refuge in you, that we would hide ourselves away uh, in your wounds, Lord, knowing that it is by your stripes that we are healed. Jesus, we thank you so much that you have set us free, and that when you set us free, we are free indeed. Lord, I pray that we would revel and delight in the freedom that you have given us, in the freedom that we can now taste, when we, and we can taste and truly see that you are good, and we see that beautifully and best in and through Jesus Christ. Thank you again. In your name I pray. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder is delivered live and streamed daily weekdays at 8.15 a.m. and weekends at 9.15 a.m. Join us at live.ellerslie.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellerslie.com. Thanks for listening. Thank <laughs> you.